welcome to this edition of Maine The Way Life Could Be, a series in which we look at challenges and opportunities facing Maine in the lifetime of people alive today. I'm Jim Campbell. And I'm Amy Brown. Merriam-Webster defines demographics as, quote, the statistical characteristics of human populations, such as age or income, used especially to identify markets, close quote which is one reason Maine's demographic projections are done by the state economist's office. Before we take a look at what that office is predicting for Maine in our lifetimes, we want to define a few more terms that we'll hear about today. A cohort is a group of people who share something in common, such as all the people born in a particular decade, or everyone who graduated from high school in a certain year, and so on. We'll also hear today the terms median, and average or mean, frequently used in reference to housing prices. Median simply means middle. There would be an equal number of houses priced higher and houses priced lower than the median house price in a particular area. Median house price differs from mean or average price, which would be calculated by adding up the prices of all of the houses and then dividing by the number of houses. With those definitions in mind, let's take a look at some of those numbers. The main population outlook report for the years 2018 to 2028, which was compiled by the state economist, Amanda Rector, in April of 2021, used pre-pandemic data. At that point in time, the report predicted that the statewide population would increase by just over 2% during the 10-year period 2018 to 2028. Those predictions include 12% fewer Maine residents ages 19 and younger, 4.5% fewer 20 to 39-year-olds, and 10% fewer Mainers aged 40 to 64. The only age group category predicted to increase is ages 65 and older, and that increase is significant. The percentage of Maine residents aged 65 and older was predicted to increase by 44.6 percent between 2018 and 2028. So the population of retirement age residents is expected to increase by about 45 percent, while at the same time there will be a roughly 5 to 10 percent decrease in working age residents. Looking at predictions for some of the counties in the WERU broadcast area, Waldo County was predicted to be second only to York County in anticipated population growth between 2018 and 2028 at 6.8%. Knox County is projected to see a 3.7% population increase. Hancock and Penobscot counties are expected to see modest decreases in population of about a half a percentage point each. The main Population Outlook 2018 to 2028 report notes, quote, as baby boomers have aged out of their prime childbearing years, the number of deaths each year has begun to exceed the number of births each year. This is a reversal of what happened when baby boomers were in childbearing years when births far outnumbered deaths. In this case, Maine's population can only grow through in-migration. From 2016 to 2019, Maine has seen net domestic migration accelerate with 6,613 new Mainers from other states in the year 2019. Strong in-migration in the past four years has contributed to improved population projections and will have a positive impact on Maine's economy in the future, end quote. 
Last month, Maine State Economist Amanda Rector did a presentation for the Maine Association of Mortgage Professionals that outlined the impact of demographic changes on the house market and potentially vice versa. Among some of the key points she made, active housing listings in Maine fell from about 14,000 in late 2016, early 2017, to fewer than 2,000 in January of 2022. Housing prices have risen to the point that there are only two counties in the entire state, Aroostook and Washington, where more than half of the people earning the median household income can afford to buy a median-priced home. Maine is still the least diverse state in the country, but the percentage of BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color residents did increase more than 4% between 2010 and 2020, from 5.6% to 9.8%. Let's take a deeper look into some of those numbers, where they came from, and what they may mean for Maine's future. Amanda Rector is a state economist for Maine. In this capacity, she conducts ongoing analysis of Maine's economic and demographic conditions to help inform policy decisions. Amanda is a member of the State of Maine's Revenue Forecasting Committee and serves as the governor's liaison to the U.S. Census Bureau. She started working for the state in 2004 and has been the state economist since 2011. She earned a BA in economics from Wellesley and her master's in public policy and management from the Muskie School of Public Service at the University of Southern Maine. We talked with Amanda about what she sees looking ahead for demographic changes at a state level and what those changes might mean for different aspects of life in Maine. I wonder if you could just spend a moment and explain what demographics is and why that matters as we look forward to what life could be like in Maine. Demographics are one of my passions. And so anytime I give a presentation, I start with demographics because they're so important to understanding the economy. Demographics really are just a description of the population in a certain place. And it includes not just sort of the number of people, but some descriptions about the people, age, gender, race, ethnicity. Um, it could even include things like educational attainment, household status, those go a little bit beyond sort of the pure demographics, which are really about the characteristics of people. But if you think about the fact that the economy is made up of people making decisions, understanding who those people are gives you a much better sense of what could be happening in the economy. And understanding the demographics of a place allow you to craft policies that are best suited to the needs of the population that you have. One of the things that is part of your job is to not only take demographics about what's going on right at the moment, but to look at what has happened up till now, and then to make an attempt to take a look at what is likely to happen. How do you do that? population projections. They are as much an art as a science, I will say. We use a method here called a cohort component method, which essentially means we are splitting the population into certain cohorts. We use five-year age cohorts, and then we divide out by males and females. And then we look at 
how each cohort might change between now and a future period. And the way that we do that is we look at what has been happening in recent trends. And we use those trends to extrapolate out. There are a few different components we look at. We look at births and we look at specifically births by the age of mother. And so we, we divide out for each woman's age, the, the rate of childbirth for that particular age group. We look at the number of deaths by age and sex. And then we look at migration. And that one is easily the trickiest of the bunch. Births and deaths are pretty straightforward to come by, at least in terms of getting good solid data. We get that directly from the main CDC. But migration, there's not a terrific source for historical migration data. We use um, a couple of different pieces from the Census Bureau, but they, there are margins of error involved. It's based on a survey that's a sample of the population. And migration is much more prone to change than birth rates and death rates. Birth rates and death rates do change, but they change more gradually and, and usually they don't jump around too much. Migration, on the other hand, can change very, very rapidly. Uh, and trying to divide out that migration across different age cohorts can be complicated as well because there are different things happening. For example, the college population requires a whole separate set of calculations to do those estimations than sort of your standard population. So where does the raw data come from? How do you get all of that data? Is all, all from the census? So we use a few different data sources, and that's one of the challenges is I have to wait for all of the data to be available, and some of it is quite lagged, so it takes me a while to do these projections. We use births and deaths data from the main CDC. We use population estimates from the Census Bureau's Population Estimates Program. We use some population projections at the national level from the Census Bureau. We also use some migration data from the Census Bureau's American Community Survey. And then we use college data from a couple of different sources. You mentioned that you look at quote unquote recent data in order to try to make projections forward. What does recent data mean in this context? So when we do our projections, we're usually doing them on a five-year basis. So for example, the next set that I update will start with 2020 as the base year. They'll be for 2025, 2030, 2035, and 2040. We use usually the past five years for the trends. Sometimes we use a 10-year period, depending on sort of how much noise there has been, how much variation there has been in the past five years. Sometimes using a longer 10-year period smooths out that trend a little bit more and gives us more reasonable projections going forward. But usually we're looking at what has happened in the last five years and using that to extrapolate out. Now, looking ahead, sort of that first five-year period is usually the most plausible in terms of 
the reliability of those projections. The further out you go, the less reliable they become. We do produce those out 20 years because that's what a lot of the comprehensive plans for towns require. I always encourage people, if you're looking that far out, take it with a grain of salt because there's a lot that can change in that 20-year period. Lots that can change in a two-year period, we think at least. And we want to get into that a little bit about what some of the impacts of the pandemic might be. But looking at the was it the 2018 to 2028? That's the most recent report? Those are the current ones, yes. Right. So as you put that together, as a demographer and a state economist, somebody who's been doing this for a long time, when you put together that report, were there any trends that were different from what you've been seeing before? Anything that stood out to you as particularly interesting? So when we did that iteration, the 2018 to 2028 projections, we were starting to pick up a higher rate of migration into the state than we had been seeing earlier. And so those projections are a little bit more optimistic than the previous sets of projections had been in terms of seeing higher rates of growth for the state as a whole, and then also spread a little bit further across more of the counties. There are still some counties in those projections that are expected to see population declines, but more of the counties than previously were expected to see some population increases. I want to just bring up some of the points that I took out of here, just so listeners are aware of them. And uh, we'll put a link to this report on the uh, archives page when this program is archived at weru.org so people can look at these numbers and also you do a really good uh, breakdown at the end that's accessible to anyone who's reading it I think on how you get your numbers and how you calculate them for anybody who wants to know more about that. One of the things that stood out to me was that Maine's prime working age population ages 20 to 64 was projected to decrease by almost 8% during those 10 years from 2018 to 2028. And the older cohort, the 65 and older age cohort is expected to grow by 44.6% during that time. So just taking that one factoid, what does that mean to towns that come to you trying to do their comprehensive plans or businesses that come to you thinking about relocating to the state or who, who else comes to you and uses this information and how does that inform them in their decision making? Yeah, so I think that, that you know the driving factor behind that is the aging of the baby boom generation. So the baby boomers were born between 1946 and 1964 in some of the out years of those projections, all of the baby boomers are beyond the age of 65. And that's the largest generational cohort that we have in Maine. We have the largest percentage of our population that is in the baby boom generation of any state in the nation. That's why we also have the oldest median age of any state. And so that has a lot of repercussions in terms of looking ahead to available labor force Because, well, certainly at 65, a large share of the population is still engaged in the labor force. As people move into 70, 75, 80, 85, those labor force participation rates tend to decline. 
which means that the available labor force, particularly because we don't have a lot of younger populations moving into the workforce, it limits the availability of future workforce. And that, that has been a concern for some time. And there certainly are a lot of efforts around to try to address that. And it includes everything from attracting more younger workers to the state to fully engaging the folks who have been underutilized in the economy. And it also means looking at those folks who are in the older age cohorts and finding ways to keep them engaged in the labor force longer, maybe in different ways than they had in the past, but keeping them engaged so that they can continue to contribute to our labor force in the, the future. Looking ahead at those projections, you have certainly you have businesses that are looking there at, at trying to figure out what available labor force they're going to have. But you also have a lot of different levels of policymaking that are involved with looking at the demographics of the population, particularly in terms of age, and thinking about the needs of the population in those different age cohorts and what types of policies need to be in place to best support them at the state level and at the local level as well. Well, in addition to Maine being considered the oldest state, and you said in 2019, Maine had the largest percentage of population, 65 plus of any state in the country. We also always hear that we're either the whitest state in the country or in the top two seems to have shifted over time. This report says, quote, currently Maine is the least diverse state in the United States with 94.4% of the population identifying as white. But this is what really caught my attention. It goes on to say, however, from 2010 to 2019, 96.4% of the population gain in the state that happened during that period of time came from non-white populations. We've seen a real increase in racial and ethnic diversity in the state over the, the past decade in particular. We do still have the smallest percentage of Black, Indigenous, and people of color of, of any state in the U.S., so we're still the least racially and ethnically diverse. But we've seen a, a tremendous increase. We went from, I think it was 5.6% in 2010, and I, I think we're at 9.8% for 2020. Part of what happened with the decennial census in 2020, in addition to seeing migration into the state of more diverse populations, we've seen a reclassification of some folks. The Census Bureau in 2020 read one of the responses differently than they had in the past, essentially. So people who had previously been categorized as white alone were now being categorized as two or more races. So it picked up a little bit more of the existing diversity that we had and just didn't know because of how the Census Bureau was reading the results of the decennial census. But certainly, as we've seen migration into the state increase, and most of that has been domestic migration in the past few years, so people moving from other parts of the U.S. to Maine. If you look at the national population being so much more diverse than Maine's, it, it makes sense that as we see more of that coming to Maine, it's increasing our diversity as well. 
Right. And you note elsewhere in the report that the only way Maine is going to continue to grow not only is by in-migration, but also by those people who come here having more children because the age ranges of people who can have children right now, we don't have enough population for that. I thought it was interesting how this section concluded, though. You say, quote, to be successful, Maine must not only welcome racially and ethnically diverse communities to the state, but also work consistently to make its economy more equitable and inclusive for these populations. Can you say anything yeah. more about that? The more diversity that you have, whether in a business or in a town or in a state, the more different points of view that you have and different experiences, the more innovation you have, the better outcomes you have. So I think it's really important that we are not just understanding that we're seeing population changes in the state and we need to be welcoming to those because we do need to have more folks moving to the state and they are likely to be more diverse populations. And that should be welcomed because it offers some new insights and some new innovations and some new viewpoints to the state. But we also need to recognize that in the past, there have been different cohorts, whether they're women, whether they're people of color, there are certain populations that have not had the same economic opportunities. And if you think about raising up those populations to be able to fully contribute to the state's economy and participate in the state's economy, you get a lot more bang for your buck if everybody is able to fully engage than if only a small portion or even a large portion, but if, if, if some portion of your population is sort of the core and then others aren't able to engage as fully it's good business practice and good policy practice as well to understand that encouraging those more diverse populations and encouraging the full engagement of those populations has good outcomes in the long run. Do you have any kind of sense of just based on anecdotal information and what you're seeing in other places, what you expect we might be seeing in terms of shift since the pandemic? And how soon will you actually get the concrete data to make more projections or make that sort of shift to the projections that needs to be like course corrected by the information about what happened during and what will maybe keep happening for a while after the pandemic? And also taking into account you know, possibly climate refugees. I don't know if that's something that anyone tracks, how many of those there actually are, but there have been people, you know, who have been predicting that we may see an increase in population from people in places that are being more affected by climate change more quickly than we are coming here. So we'll have data from the population estimates program on age for 2020 and 2021 very soon. Uh, we've been anxiously waiting for this. We don't yet have age data from the decennial census, and that won't be out for a while still. Um, it's, it's a little backward to be getting 2021 age data before we get 2020 age data, but that's just the way that uh, some of the, the sources worked this time around. The migration piece of it isn't in those estimates that we'll have by age. You, we might see some of it if there's a shift in some of the age cohorts beyond sort of what we had been expecting from recent trends, that might give us an indication that there was a, a migration 
boom in certain age cohorts. I'm kind of hoping that's the case because it would give me something more to, to tell people rather than just, I don't know. We will eventually have migration data from the American Community Survey. They did not produce 2020 single year estimates of American Community Survey data. It was so unreliable because of the pandemic that they just, they said, nope, it, we can't do it for this year. Um, which means that we have to wait for 2021 estimates to come out. And then we'll be able to compare those to 2019 to get some sense of what the migration has been by age cohorts. Now, the margins of error are going to be really large, whether or not that was a real trend or just a bit of noise in the data series. But that should give us a, a better sense, but it'll it'll be a while before we see those. So I'm, I'm still waiting on, on some of that. And I haven't really figured out exactly how I'm going to deal with all of the pandemic effects when I do the next set of projections. There are some things that were more temporary effects, excess deaths because of COVID, for example. That's gonna be something that shows up in the data, but isn't necessarily a long-term trend. It's, it's more a temporary blip that happened that won't be, hopefully won't be repeated again in the data. So um, something like that, essentially, we, we have to take out of the data when we are doing the projections. On the other hand, if there are migration changes that are likely to be longer term, then those will need to be accounted for in the projections. And that's gonna be the hardest part to get a good handle on because the data has been so limited. We were seeing an increase in migration before the pandemic, which leads me to believe that probably we will continue to see heightened migration into the state going forward. But whether some of what we saw was a temporary, people who came here just to escape the pandemic and then went back, how much of that migration happened versus folks who came here long-term I don't have a great sense of yet, and I'm going to have to figure out how to incorporate that into the projections. One of the things that we certainly have heard a lot about is that the sales of houses in Maine has just increased really, really dramatically. As I understand that something in excess of a third of those sales are from people who are not from Maine. The question I suppose is, do we know whether these are second homes? Do we know whether there are going to be people living in those houses on a permanent basis? We certainly know that it's affecting the ability of other people to get housing. What do we know about it? When I give presentations lately, the two things everyone wants to talk about are housing and inflation. The housing issue has become really, really challenging. 
I don't have a great sense of how many of the recent home purchases have been second homes or investment properties for short-term rentals versus sort of permanent year-round family residences. Maine already has the highest share of what the census calls homes that are vacant for seasonal, recreational, or occasional use, essentially second homes. So it wouldn't surprise me if particularly in some of the parts of the state that are more sort of outdoor recreation heavy, that we saw some of those purchases being ultimately second homes. It, it may have been somebody who bought it to live there during the pandemic and then is expecting that in the future, you know, they might move back to where they came from, but they're not gonna sell the property, they're gonna keep the property. What we've seen even before the pandemic has been a decrease in the available housing inventory. Active listings just six years ago were up around 14,000 and now they're around 2,000. So we've seen a really sharp decline in the availability of housing stock. Nationally, for a while, there was not a lot of new housing being built. And in Maine, if you think about why you might want to build a bunch of new houses, well, if you are expecting that there are going to be a lot of new households being formed, for example, from young folks who had been living with their parents and are now moving out and starting families and wanting their own homes, you might be building a lot of houses for that. Or if you look at a place and you say, gosh, there's a lot of migration, we're going to build some houses for that migration. Maine hadn't had either of those for a while. We had had pretty slow in-migration. And of course, with the older population, we didn't have a lot of new household formations, which meant we didn't have a lot of new housing stock being built. When all of a sudden you have an increase in demand for housing, you very rapidly use up the available stock and are left with very limited availability. And, and if you have a lot of demand and a low supply, prices go up. We've seen that happen, and it's it's happened across much of the country, not just in Maine, but Maine has seen house prices increase even faster than the U.S. Um, and the rest of New England. If you if you look at some of the house price effect data, and that has made affordability of housing a real challenge, and that flows through. It's not just home ownership that flows through to rental housing too. Um, rental housing was already a challenge because it was very limited availability and particularly a lot of the rural parts of the state. So if we're hoping to continue to attract more folks to the state, particularly younger workers, you have to have a place to live, which means that we have to figure out the housing situation because they we've got to have a place to put people. I think the good news is that there's become an increased awareness of this and everybody seems to realize that housing has become an issue. And so that hopefully will uh, inspire some solutions to the problem, whether coming from policy changes or private sector investments. The Federal Reserve raising interest rates may cool some demand, but it's not going to help the affordability piece of it because it's going to make a mortgage even more expensive and unattainable for more people. So it, it's not an easy thing to solve. Housing doesn't materialize overnight. And with a limited available workforce and higher costs for materials, it's quite a process. 
it's a real challenge. It's not an easy thing to solve, but it's something that we're going to have to solve uh, if we're going to continue to see the kinds of in-migration and, and growth that we would like to see. Does anyone keep track of how many houses are being used as uh, full-time residences versus part-time residences versus short-term rentals in the state? I don't know of anyone that tracks that. The only source that I know of that gets at sort of the second home piece of it is that census data from the American Community Survey around homes that are vacant for seasonal, occasional, or recreational use. There may be some local data, uh, you know, there may be towns that are collecting some of that, but there isn't any data that I know of that's sort of on a statewide level that tracks the use of a given property. The way that we are looking at this series is we're looking at the lifetime of people who are alive today in Maine and what the world might be for them in the future. Now, of course, that's a wide range, right? Even so, it's not 2100 here. If you were, if you were looking ahead, what do you think Maine is going to look like in 2040? Yeah, you know, I think we will see more population growth in more rural parts of the state. I think that that trend is likely to continue, sort of reversing some of what we had seen previously with, with more concentrations of population growth and uh, around the, the Portland area in particular. I think we're going to see people going further afield. I think that we will continue to see migration into the state of younger populations. So hopefully we'll see some of those aging trends slow at least. Certainly the, the aging of baby boomer population is going to continue. But if we attract more population that is younger, that population bulge won't be quite as obvious as it is now. I think we're going to continue to see increased diversity in the population. And I haven't in the past done population projections by race and ethnicity because, in large part because the data is so limited, but I've been thinking about how ways that we might be able to do that going forward, because I think that that's an increasingly important part of the state's demographics and trying to figure out some way to, to incorporate that into our. I think that a lot of the trends that we have been seeing the past few years are likely to continue for some time and maybe accelerate you know, depending on what happens with climate change. And we haven't really incorporated the climate refugees into the projections in the past, but as we get further out into the future, that is likely to become more of an issue and, and more plausibly a source of migration into the state in larger numbers. Even looking five years out, there's a lot that can happen on the migration side to make them those projections very, very different the next time we, we update them. So it's hard to pin down what it might look like in, uh, in another 20 years. We won't hold you to anything, but we will be paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was Amanda Rector, Maine State Economist, 
offering us some observations on how demographic changes on a state level might affect the way life could be in Maine in the not too distant future. You're listening to Maine, the way life could be, the demographics in our lifetime edition on WERU-FM. To bring that conversation down to a more local level, we also talked with Jim Fisher. Jim Fisher is the town manager for Deer Isle, a former senior planner and current chair of the Hancock County Planning Commission. He earned a doctorate in urban regional planning from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and was a Fulbright scholar overseas. But perhaps his most important work was hosting Common Health here on WERU for several years. Well, we think so anyway. Here's part of our conversation. From a perspective of someone who is working at a county level or perhaps even a town level, in trying to think about the future, how do you go and look at demographic information when trying to make policies? I mean, if I'm going to put in a, a McDonald's, I want to know how many people are likely to pass the corner in a day or something like that. But what I'm trying to think about the future of housing in my area or the future of bringing business to my area or whatever it might be, how can I put demographics to use in thinking about those kinds of questions? Part of it depends on your philosophy, I guess. I'm pretty much a demand-driven economist. I think that we plan our infrastructure, housing, businesses, as you say, McDonald's on demand and what we estimate to be the future demand. And a lot of that is population driven. The other side of the coin would be a supply side perspective, which would be more build it and they will come. If we if we prepare the infrastructure, people will take advantage of. And there's there's always truth to that. But I think in my case, I'm more intrigued, I guess, with trying to figure out what people will do as rational decision makers, given a set of opportunities, incentives, and, and so on. And so in, in terms of looking at Hancock County, for instance, there are factors, there's sort of these really long range factors, which seem to be speeding up like climate. So in that very long range, I'm looking at factors that are you know, sort of geological, even climatic climate and, and uh, sea level rise, that, which will affect what we have available. There are a set of determinants there that I think affect the demand for where people will be. That's the, you know, their comfort, their material well-being. In a shorter time frame, when we're getting down to say 40 or 50 years, <laughs> 20 years, I'm looking at, at age structure population. That's really important to me. So, and everyone is. We're looking at school enrollments and saying, boy, we've got an enormous baby boom generation. And the population pyramid is kind of standing on its head where we've got great number of people who are old and as much as it kind of shrinks down, there are little echoes of the baby boom, but it kind of shrinks down. And so, you know, in that somewhat shorter time frame, I'm, I'm looking at what kinds of services do we need as the boomers kind of age out and either move or pass away. And and then shrinking numbers of people who will be here by regular population growth, the sort of cohort survival models a demographer would use. The big unknown, I guess, the two big unknowns, one, we don't really know what fertility behavior will be. My guess is with fewer and fewer people of childbearing age, there are going to be fewer children. Other things being equal, the economic factors don't seem to encourage women to have lots of children or couples to have lots of children. And so unless we had a large number of people in childbearing age or a, a 
baby boom of people deciding to have big families, probably we'd be seeing that sort of shrinkage naturally occurring here. The thing we have to deal with is migration, which is where climate comes in, where economic opportunity comes in. We have traditionally in Hancock County, at least in the years I've been here, we've seen a lot of migration of older populations to the area, which don't have a long-term impact on population. They're already past childbearing years. And so we're looking at them as a retiree population that come and they age and they eventually leave. And that doesn't really contribute to a sustained growth of population. That would take younger families or young adults staying and having children. That could happen. COVID certainly had an enormous impact, unanticipated impact, where people came who had summer residences came in February and March and toughed out the spring and stayed on because they were escaping epicenters in you know, New York and New Jersey and Boston. Now that's not a factor anymore, and it may be that some of those people have gone back. I don't have a good way to know, but it created a technological revolution, I guess. Another piece of the puzzle is that the, we're using Zoom. I mean, it's so easy now. It wasn't before COVID. It w- I've been using it for a long time, but now it's everyone's got a good webcam. And the, the result is that we're seeing a, an explosion of interest in remote work here. We're getting fiber optic in all of the Blue Hill Peninsula, I think, over the next six months. And that's going to contribute to that ability of people to come and stay that technology adapted to COVID, and now it's adapting to the new workforce realities. And so it's a little hard to predict what's going to happen with migration, but it seems like we're going to have more demand than we can match with housing. We've seen that already. Housing prices have spiked. My expectation is our natural increase is not going to drive population growth. We have a lot of older people who are going to pass away, and we would, other things being equal, shrink. And that was the anticipation even 10 years ago that we would hit this point where the boomers are now in their 90s and 80s and 70s and the younger ones in their 60s. As mortality rates pick up for people say age, we would be declining in population. But migration has really changed with climate change and technology. Let me just uh, jump in here real quick because you yeah. touched on a couple of things I wanted to follow up on. Thinking back to when we last interviewed you for this series, we also yeah. talked to Kathleen Billings at the same time, the town manager at Stonington. Yeah. And she said something that has sort of stuck with me, which is you can build affordable housing in places. You can try to address, you know, the in-migration of people and housing prices that are going through the roof by building affordable housing. But you can't keep necessarily your workforce in town with that affordable housing. If there is a checklist of things that people have, criteria that people have to meet to apply for and get into new housing that's being built, one of the things that is not on them, Jim and I have discussed this, and apparently this isn't can't be on it, is residency. So you can't actually keep people who have lived in a town for a long time, maybe generations, or maybe they moved there 10 years ago, but they've got kids in your schools, they've got jobs in your area, and they just want to stay in their home and they're getting priced out of it. 
affordable housing comes to town, you would think that the people who are already living in that town might get some kind of leg up on being able to stay there, but that's not the case. People move in from other places. People who've been living there have to go someplace else to try to find some place that's affordable to live. So one part of what I've been thinking about and wondering about is how do you keep a basic community intact and not just up for the highest bidder? And then the second part of that that you also touched on is what happens when your community is filled with people who work in another state who are just sitting home on their computers telecommuting all day and you don't have enough workers to keep the gas station running or to um, keep the diner going or the person who has a diner has to commute 60 miles to get to work in the morning. How do we preserve communities of local people? Is there anything that, that can be done to address that? What's more, since we don't really have a lot of higher education opportunities here except for remote learning, there's, a, there's going to be, I mean, if we're successful in our high schools and educate at least a percentage of those students to be college bound, they're going to leave, at least for a while. And a lot of them, once they're gone, they're going to pick up opportunities other places. And that's natural. But let me back up a little bit. One thing that I'd like to dispel, and that is the role of municipalities in sort of pricing people out of their homes. It, it is true that as home values go up, it gets much harder to buy one. But actually, as home values go up, taxes don't necessarily. They, they may even go down. We did a revaluation, and I know this gets into the weeds a little bit, last year. And we hadn't done one in... It had been 22 years, something like that, a long time. The result was kind of what I expected, that the value of the properties about tripled <laughs> over that time, but the tax rates went down by about two-thirds. Taxes are only what you need to raise to run your town. The result for most people was kind of a wash. Their taxes really didn't go up. And even as property values go up, unless the town is demanding more money for more services, because say wealthy people want more services, then taxes don't go up. They, they, just the tax rate drops about the same rate that the tax, the value of the property goes up. It's true that the coastal properties, the view properties, those we thought would rise more than the interior properties, even that didn't seem to pan out so much. Everyone's taxes by and large stayed the same. Some people who had been really underassessed years ago, their taxes went up significantly. But the other factor, the actual price of the house, if you want to buy a house or the rent, if there's a shortage of rental housing, that definitely is a problem for people, young families who want to move here. We have a local nonprofit, Island Workforce Housing. They're in the process of building five duplexes, say 10 units. That's really a drop in the bucket. I'm sure every year we're losing many times that to short-term rentals. And that's probably the strangest outcome of the technological revolution of better internet and the ability to operate Airbnb or VRBO is that you don't need anyone there anymore. The logistics are all handled by algorithms on computers so that it's now much easier for an individual or a business to buy income properties, put it on short-term rental. And that's probably the biggest factor that's creating, I think, a pinch on housing now. There are builders everywhere. They're trying to build houses, a lot of them high-end. 
But the short-term rentals seem to be eating up a lot of properties. One of the big concerns is that just a new organizational structure that a business, a fairly big business, can buy up properties and another big business can manage the properties and they can hire a couple local people to clean the places between stays, but they can earn in a few months, maybe three months, more than they'll get in rent if they go year-round. You've heard this story before. That I'm very concerned about, kind of constraining supply. Neoclassical economics, you would argue that it's not surprising that new houses cost more. It's unusual to build houses for people who don't have a lot of money, that the historical process was you build houses, and over time as they age, they get used by people with lower incomes. But here the value is driven so much by the view of the water and the location that they don't go down in value. They just seem to be maintained and go up. But it's hard in an unaffordable place with high land values to build affordable housing. Uh, you have to monkey with the tax law and, and other kinds of incentives. You have to attract private donations to, to somehow make this housing affordable when the land and everything else is not affordable. You have to subsidize it somehow. And it's been uh, difficult, I'd say, in most small towns to come up with municipal willingness to do that, that level of subsidy. We hear all the time about the problem of out-migration of uh, young people, whether they've yeah. graduated high school and they move out or they go to college and they don't come back. I think it's only been in the last few decades that it's really been an issue whether or not somebody in that age range can afford to live in Maine. Again, it, it's very specific to location. I think coastal Deer Isle has probably been largely unaffordable since the rusticators, you know, a long time ago. The, the really pristine coastal views of the crashing surf, those just demand a high price because of their vacation value. The interior areas of Maine, yeah, I would say affordability is going down. And, and, you know, we built out most of the really good coastal properties. And then we moved into the estuaries and the bays, and those are being built out. Bangor is as expensive as Portland in rent now. Yeah, Bangor is really an interesting, and I have to say for me, in some ways, a success story, because they, they were in an economic depression for decades. And now they've come up with this formula with some of the old buildings rehabilitation. I, I recently did a, a walkthrough with some planners there. And I'm, for a city that's having trouble meeting its obligations financially, that's not a bad thing. But how do you counterbalance that effect of gentrification on people who are there? Again, I don't have a good answer, but it does involve some kind of subsidies. The other alternative is, and we're considering it here, like actually discouraging high value development, like trying to prevent short-term rentals. That's a bitter pill. When a town's you know, interested in growth and having the money to keep the tax rates low and, you know, to suddenly say, no, no, you want to do this and you'll pay a lot of tax, but we don't want to let you do it, particularly for a conservative select board, a difficult thing to do. But somehow you have to come up with, I guess we call a Pareto optimum of some sort where you can take some surplus from that development and use it to a good purpose to create an affordable option for other people. Again, those transfers are politically difficult to engineer. I'm involved at the state level with the Maine Association of Planners, and you're, you're well aware, and I don't know the LD number, but the legislation that passed in Maine, and it's one, one attempt to sort of address this problem was to allow additional density and yes. accessory structures. MAP was pretty ambivalent. I mean, the Maine Municipal Association was 
completely opposed to it. I was ambivalent. I think it's by and large good to allow greater density. We have real environmental challenges with it because we don't have sewer systems, we don't have public water yep, yep. systems, and we have a very sort of delicate aquifer. And if we're not careful, we'll end up like Stonington where they don't have enough water anymore and they have to truck it in every summer at great expense. Our risk here, because it's all well and septic, is that we'll, the greater density and and foolish you know, environmental practices will contaminate the groundwater or sea level rise will cause salt infiltration. And those risks, you know, too many septic systems, for instance, in too small an area, we ruin the groundwater, then we're really in a pickle. In general, I think the accessory structure idea, it's it sort of perverse, but what, what will happen is people will live in their house until the summer, then they'll move into the accessory structure and start renting their house during the summer, then they'll move back to their house, and maybe they'll rent the accessory structure during the winter to someone else. That at least increased the supply of housing, and it created an opportunity that, that they didn't leave. They're still living here, <laughs> but they're able through that rent they're generating to stay. I think it's probably a good thing, but I'm concerned about you know, groundwater and some of the other. I'm not worried about traffic. I mean, there's hardly any here. I'm not too worried about air pollution, I'm, but I am worried about groundwater. And to some extent, the other thing that happens, and you know, we've seen it throughout time, is that as you take up the better properties, people start moving into more and more marginal areas. And our risk here is that people are developing closer and closer to some of our wetlands and other kind of terrestrial systems where we have to be more cautious and we don't really have regulations to stop that. The state has provided shoreland zoning, which prevents you from developing within, you know, uh, 75 feet of, of, a, of a large wetland, but 75 feet is not very far away. What would you say, let's say Hancock County, which is where WERU is located, what would you say is the biggest challenge facing the Hancock County area. So you can't, I think, paint with a very broad brush about what we is our greatest threat or our greatest opportunity. But I think if you were looking regionally, I would say we need to keep an eye on our, our water. <laughs> you know, we, we really have to be careful. That's probably our greatest asset is we've got an abundant supply of fresh water. And there are parts of the country where because of commercial agriculture and fertilizers, they've lost that. And with climate change and with greater heat, water is going to be more of an issue, either managing huge rainstorms, managing sea level rise, salt water, managing droughts and wildfires. I, I'm very concerned. I've already emphasized how important groundwater is, but all of the water systems are really important. And there's going to be no doubt about it everything's staying the same, water systems are going to be under greater and greater stress. I wish I had a, an answer for it, but I, every day I deal with it in different ways. We have people requesting to build riprap to protect their shoreland from washing away as you know, sea level rises and the ocean activity becomes more and more aggressive, I guess, storms and surface runoff becomes much greater in the heavier rainstorms and uh, we have people who are worried about in Stonington not having enough water and other areas with water contamination and that, that's going to be our ace in the hole if we can, <laughs> we can maintain a, an abundant supply of safe drinking water and that puts us in a very small 
small fraction of the total planet. That was Jim Fisher, town manager of Deer Isle and current chair of the Hancock County Planning Commission. We have covered a lot of information on today's program, and we will post the links for the reports we've mentioned on the page for today's program in the local public affairs archive on the WERU website, where you can also find all of the programs in this series archived for streaming anytime you would like to listen. You can also subscribe to our podcasts and never miss a show. Just go to WERU.org, click on programming, and then on local public affairs archives. You'll find the other local programs produced at WERU there as well. Our next program in the main The Way Life Could Be series will air on Tuesday, August 2nd at 4 p.m. We'll be taking a look at two of the important demographic impacts mentioned today, affordable housing and affordable and accessible health care. What do you think are the biggest concerns and opportunities to affordable housing and to accessible and affordable health care that Maine will face in your lifetime? Please go to www.weru.org and record a brief message to let us know right there on the main page or send us an email at thewaylifecouldbe at weru.org. We may use your comments on the air, so be sure to include your name and town if you'd like us to use them. That's it for today's program. Maine The Way Life Could Be is made possible in part by a grant from the Maine Arts Commission. We're Jim Campbell and Amy Brown. Thanks for listening and keep it tuned here to Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming at weru.org and on the smartphone app.